Hey everyone, welcome back to Keto and Crime and Thought Crime. Today we've got part two of Killer Kids. Oh, this has been a difficult series, it really has. Um, I thought I would be able to get through more stories and episodes, but it appears just the depth of some of these, it's going to take a little bit longer, so I will probably do a third part to this before I go into our standalone evil kid serial killer Mary Bell and my good friend Zach who has been a subscriber a, a patron and a channel member for us almost since the beginning has been asking for this and so I'm going to give you Mary Bell in a standalone one or two parter Zach it's coming up before spring is over you will have that so just let you know Anyway, with that being said, a huge shout out to all my subscribers, all my patrons, all my channel members. Without you, I couldn't do it. Um, if you want to join patrons and channel members, those links are down below. If you want to subscribe, and I please do hit that. If you look down and that subscribe button is still red, just go ahead and gently tap it. It really helps out the channel. You'll get alert, and then hit that little bell. You'll get the alerts when I upload a new video. My I'm about half and half subscribers and non-subscribers that watch my videos, and it is my goal to get to 10,000 subscribers by the end of this year, and I hope that that becomes a possibility. So if you could do that, it would really help. Also, give it a like, give it a comment, give it a share. And with that, let's dive into our next evil kid. Jasmine Richardson was born in 1994 in Medicine Hat, Alberta, Canada, to Mark Richardson and his wife, Deborah, and they were by all accounts an average working class Canadian family. Nothing, um, nothing that stood out or stood in, for lack of a better term, just an average family. And I seem to find that this is the case with a lot of these kids. They are just in what would appear to be an average family, with the exception of, you know, Charles Starkweather, which we covered in the last one, who was kind of a, maybe on the poorer side, but everyone else seems to be in an average middle class kind of family. So it just leads you, leads you to know you don't always know, know what goes on next door. Uh, but anyway, um, Jasmine was always interested in horror movies, punk music, and was especially uh, intrigued with the 1994 movie Natural Born Killers, which in my last episode we studied the real-life inspiration for those movies, Charles Starkweather and Carl uh, Fugate. Uh, but she was uh, obsessed with that movie and called it the perfect love story. Now, I, I don't believe that horror movies or movies about killers affect a sane person and push them into killing. I believe that perhaps if you already have something innately evil in you, that maybe those could weigh on that. But the average person that watches horror movies or movies about killers or true crime is not going to be inspired to go out and do those crimes on their own. So that's my opinion, like it or leave it. But that's just what I think. But I do think the fact that she called it the perfect 
love story was weird. And, but this is from the young, her youngest, her, her youngest age, she would call that. Now, she, uh, they did have a young son by the name of Tyler, who was born four years after, uh, after Jasmine. And they were, by all accounts, very, very close. However, they did have uh, some average family strife. Uh, her parents weren't necessarily thrilled about the types of music she was into, but, you know, that happens. Well, she started investigating uh, websites like, you know, MySpace and uh, things like that, which were, of course, heavily musically influenced and got into the hard rock, uh, punk, metal genres. And that led her to some other websites, including one called VampireFreaks.com, where she met a young man by the name of Jason Steinick. Y'all, I just realized I've been calling him Jason this entire time. His name is Jeremy. Jeremy Steinick. I apologize for that. I really do. My notes got a little combobulated here. I apologize. And Steinick was 23 years old to, Carl, to Jasmine's 12. Yeah. And the two met on this website, started conversing on this website, and basically started an online love affair, for lack of a better term. Uh, Steinick... Not only was, in, was he into the punk music, the horror movies, the natural born killer stuff, he was also of the opinion that he himself was a hundred year old vampire. And that he carried a vial, a, a vial of a red substance around his neck on a chain that he claimed was real human blood. And that he would drink real human blood. Creepy stuff. But this is what young Jasmine became attracted. According to friends, uh, the two actually met at a punk rock show in early 2006 in person, and that's when they actually started a real-life relationship. Uh, they were also communicating not only on VampirePreaks.com, but also on Nex Nexopia, which was popular for young Canadians at that time, and ended up hanging, hanging out with him quite a bit. According to uh, Jasmine's VampirePreaks.com uh, profile, she said she was 15. That was a lie. <laughs> she was 12. But still, he's still 23. So 12, 15, not a whole lot of difference there if you're 23. Don't be messing with people under 18. Don't be messing with people under 21, people. Come on. Use some sense. But still. Uh, Richardson's name on... Vampire Freaks was Runaway Devil because, again, her obsession with the movie Natural Born Killers. And so, as you can imagine, uh, her parents were not happy with this uh, relationship and they did everything in their power to break it up. However, and Jasmine decide the only way that they can be together is to remove the obstacle of her family. And on April 23rd, 2006, with the help of a friend, Casey Lancaster, 
planned a confrontation with Jasmine's family. Now, we'll talk about Casey Lancaster a little bit later, but just know that she was involved. So, basically what had happened on April 22nd, 2006, is that Jeremy entered the home of the Richardsons. Um, speculation about what time of day it was, but they suspect it was actually later at night and entered the home through a key given to him by Jasmine. And he made enough noise that it woke up uh, Jasmine's mom, Deborah, who was 48 years old at the time, and she came downstairs to investigate it. She did not wake up her husband. She just went downstairs to investigate. And uh, Jeremy simply attacked her. There was no confrontation with them about the relationship. He attacked her and began beating and stabbing her. That noise woke up Mark, Father Mark, he, 42 at the time. He came down the stairs, immediately saw what was happening, and attacked Jeremy. However, Jeremy overpowered him and ended up killing both of the parents. Meanwhile, after all this is going on, he goes upstairs. He wakes up Jasmine, who is evidently peacefully asleep in her bed, according to everyone, and uh, told her that the deed was done. And they went back and forth, according to both of them, about what was to be done with young Tyler, who was eight. Uh, ja according to Jasmine, she did not want her brother dead. According to Jeremy, she did. And so basically what happened was they stabbed the young boy. To they strangled and stabbed the young boy to death. And they placed his body along with Mark and Deborah's body in the basement of the home and peeled out supposedly in the vehicle of, of Casey Lancaster. And they also used that vehicle to dispose of all the evidence. Well, they actually made a run in for the nearby town of Leader, Saskatchewan, which is in a totally different province. And meanwhile, a couple of neighbors' kids on April 23rd, 2006, actually went over to the Richardson home to see if young Tyler could come out and play with them. And they couldn't get anybody to the door, which they thought was really weird because somebody would always be there. So they kind of, curious kids, went around and started looking in windows. And they saw a mess in the kitchen. And so they went back and told their parents that something was wrong at the Richardson home, and they called the police to do a welfare check. Well, of course, the bodies were discovered in the basement, and they didn't immediately suspect that Jasmine was the cause of it. They suspected she had been kidnapped or maybe killed and moved elsewhere by whoever did it, so they started a manhunt for both her as a potential kidnapped victim and uh, whoever might have done this, but eventually... Uh, they did track them down in Leader, Saskatchewan, and arrested both of them with enough evidence to tie them to the crime. Um, they, uh, they arrested friend Casey Lancaster, who was 19 at the time, as an accessory and uh, charged her with basically helping them get away and dispose of the evidence by driving them away in her truck. Now, of course, this trial was 
a huge thing in, in Canada, but because of laws in Canada known as the Youth Criminal Justice Act, the names of child perpetrators cannot be published in national press in, in Canada. So basically what happened was her name went from potential victim or kidnapped victim to just missing. And the only thing talked about was the 19-year-old and the 23-year-old suspects, accessory and suspect, but her name was not mentioned. They just mentioned a, another young uh, potential murderer suspect. Also, uh, the same law prevents children under the age of 12 from being charged with any crime. So there's kind of an age of accountability in Canada, and that's 12 years old. But because she had just turned 13, by the time the trial started in 2007, she was able to be charged and found guilty of three counts of first-degree murder in reference to her parents and young brother. She is believed to be the youngest ever person convicted of murder in the country of Canada. She was sentenced to 10 years in prison because, again, she was 13, and due to Canadian law, con people that are convicted as a child, as long as they meet certain, you know, mental health markers while they're imprisoned as a juvenile, they can be released as an adult, and that's what kind of happened to her. So she spent 10 years in a youth correctional facility. She actually attended colleges, uh, a college in Mount Royal, University, Mount Royal University in Calgary, which took some additional time off her sentence, and she was actually released uh, from the uh, youth detention slash psychiatric facility in the fall of 2011 and was on a work release program undergoing psychiatric counseling as well as community service by October of 2012. And then, and May of 2016, her sentence was completely finished, and she is pretty much free from any further obligation to the court. She has expressed remorse about what happened. She contends that it was actually Steinick who was the ringleader in that, and she was really expecting him just to confront her parents and not kill them, but who knows. Steinick, however, being 23, was, of course, convicted and tried as an adult. He, he pled guilty. He did try to say that Jasmine was an equal co-conspirator in the case, but still, he's the adult, and he was sentenced to the maximum of three consecutive life sentences. He will be eligible for parole in 25 years, which puts him maybe being released from prison around 2032 or so. So we'll just have to keep an eye on that to see what happens. Meanwhile, 19-year-old Casey Lancaster actually uh, was put on one-year house arrest for driving them away from the house. She contended she did not know what was going on inside. Her friend Jeremy had just asked for a ride, and he she drove them. So I don't know if I believe her or not, but she was sentenced to one-year house arrest for her involvement in this crime. And what does this boil down to? Parents, be aware of who your young children are communing with online. And there is no stigma, nothing bad about seeking 
mental health counseling or, or psychiatric treatment. That seems to be an overarching theme in all of these cases, is a stigma against mental health. Never be afraid to pursue that, because if you need it, you need it. It's much better to do that than have something like this happen. But anyway, let's move on to our second shocking case of the day. And that is the case of Robert Thompson, Thompson and John Venables of United Kingdom, who in 1993 became England's youngest ever convicted murderers at the age of 10, where they were found guilty of killing two-year-old James Patrick Bulger. And this is a particularly sad story that really just chafes my butt, y'all. Um, not a lot is known about the early days of Robert Thompson and John Venables, except that they were kind of little jerks. They weren't very uh, well-liked at school. They did tend to bully other students, and they did little things like shoplift, and of course, the whole classic of hurting animals. So these kids had some, had some issues, let's just say that way, but this all came to a head on February 12, 1993. Closed circuit television cameras at New Strand Shopping Centers in Boodle, Liverpool, England showed Robert Thompson and John Venables in and out of shops all day that day. They had evidently skipped school and were hanging out. They were observed shoplifting candy, shoplifting batteries, and shoplifting uh, blue paint. Uh, just an odd assortment of items. Uh, according to later interrogation, the boys confessed that they were also looking for a young child to kidnap because they wanted to see what it looked like to watch somebody die. They were planning to kidnap a young child and push him into oncoming traffic. That was their plan. And unfortunately for a young Young James Boulder, he was the one they happened to see. He was with his mom, Denise, at the shame, shame shopping, uh, shopping center while inside a butcher shop on the lower level of the center around uh, 3.40 in the afternoon. Uh, she temp Denise temporarily took her eyes off her son, turned back around. He was gone. So... It happened just that quickly. She, of course, launched into a, a panic looking for her child. And unfortunately, he was found. Deceased mutilated body was found at Walton Anfield Railway, Railway Station in the village of Walton, Liverpool. But what exactly happened between the last time Denise saw her son alive and when his body was found? Well... CCTV and tons of statements taken by local police reveal kind of a timeline. Um, CCTV reveals that around 3.40 in the afternoon, Denise and James were seen near the butcher shop. And then a few moments later at approximately 3.44, footage was seen of the young two-year-old being led away by Thompson and Venables. And I'm going to drop that picture here. 
Venables is the one holding young Bulger's hand where Thompson is walking just ahead. So they led him out of the shopping center and into the city proper where they went on an approximately four kilometer or 2.5 mile walk where they were seen by approximately 38 people. They were just walked across Liverpool were seen by 38 people. According to most of the eyewitnesses, the young boy was crying non-stop. And they were actually questioned by two people, and they said that they were all brothers, they were lost, they were trying to find the police station. Now, why these people didn't immediately take the boys to a police station, I don't know. I don't pretend to know. But there's no way I would leave two young boys and a crying two-year-old toddler on the street. I, I just, I wouldn't do that. I know that there's all kinds of weirdness when it comes to children like that, but I would very definitely take possession of them and take them to a police station, no matter what the cost to me, because that's just not cool. But anyway, they were also seen in a pet shop where the crying of the young two-year-old caused them to be uh, ejected, and eventually they arrived at the village of Walton. Uh, they walked across the street, ironically, from the Walton Lane Police Station and up the steep bankment to the Walton and Anfield Railway, Railway Station, and they began torturing young Bulger. They stripped him. They threw the blue paint they had stolen into his eyes. They kicked him, stamped on him, threw bricks and stones at him. The batteries they had stolen were inserted into his mouth and according to later police reports, possibly into his rectum. Uh, upon further examination of the body, it was found that he had been molested. And when I say molested, I mean in the worst possible ways you can think of. And eventually they dropped a 22-pound iron bar uh, known as a fish plate on Bulger, which was considered the fatal blow, and he was considered dead from blunt, blunt force trauma. Um, they then laid his body across rail, railway tracks and weighted his head down with rubble, and I hope that a train would kind of finish the job and uh, conceal some of the evidence. This, this is rough, y'all. Um, and they left the scene. Uh, the body was cut in half by an oncoming train. And it was discovered on February 14th, Valentine's Day. Uh, much to the comfort of the parents, uh, the forensic pathologist was able to determine that he was dead before the train hit him. But, uh, of course, a ongoing manhunt for the perpetrators consumed all of Liverpool and most of the UK. The CCTV footage was then released in, in, of the two boys leading young Bulger away. They were hoping, it was kind of grainy, as you could see from the, the clip I showed, but they were hoping that somebody would recognize the boys. And unfortunately, as people do, people were so outraged that 
any boy that could not be accounted for that day, even if they were just homesick with their parents, became a target. There was a couple of boys that had to flee because of threats of vigilante justice. Now, I understand that people get angry when kids are involved, but they still have a right to due process, y'all. I mean, but that's, I guess, the uniqueness of the human animal, how we kind of deal with things. But eventually, a woman that knew Venables was able to watch some enhanced footage on a, a news program and recognized him. And she also happened to know, because she was affiliated with the school, that he had been absent from school that day along with Robert Thompson. And she contacted the police. Police investigated, confirmed they had been missing from school, were able to confirm that they were the boys in the film and they were arrested. The lead investigator on the case, a detective, Albert Kirby of the Merseyside Police, questioned the two youths. He, he led the investigation. Forensics revealed that they both had blood on the clothes that had been worn that day. Patterns on their shoes, along with blood on the shoes, but the patterns on the shoes also matched bruising on that had been found on Bulger's face. And they also had remnants of blue paint, the same type of paint that was thrown in Bulger's eyes were also found both on their bodies and on their clothes. And Thompson even said during his interrogate, during his questioning, asked if the two, if the boy had been taken to a hospital to get him alive again. And remember, these are 10 year olds. Because of the very young age of the children, even though they were charged, with the murder of young Burgess. They were remanded to the South Septon Youth Court on February 22nd, 1993, and were held there during the course of the trial. Their names were withheld from the public. They were called Child A, referring to Thompson, and Child B, referring to Bent Venables. They would be held at the Youth Court Detainment Center throughout the trial. Once the trial started in November of 1993, it drew a huge amount of protesters who were in part there calling for the release of the two children because they had, were being tried in the same manner as an adult. This was kind of weird. They were being tried at the Preston Crown Court there in South Sefton, but they were, it was not a normal juvenile trial. They were kept separate from their parents, which I think is wrong, but I don't, I, then again, this is the UK legal system. This is not American legal system. The parents had to go into kind of a witness protection program because they received threats from vigilantes and they were moved into a rural area where they assumed new identities to keep them safe. This trial was conducted with full uh, judge regalia. You know, you've seen the long flowing robes, the white wigs. It was conducted just like that, the boys sitting on the high-raised platforms that were normally reserved for adult perpetrators. They were sitting there, each accompanied by a different social worker. All Both of the boys pled not guilty and denied their involvement in, in the murder. They heard from several witnesses, many of the 38 people that saw them with the boy uh, throughout the city. They testified that yes, those were the two boys they saw. Another mother of another young child that they had attempted to abduct, but she had stopped them, also testified that she attempt, that they attempted to take her young son away on that same day. 
but they did plead not guilty. They did not testify during their trial, but a psychiatrist, Susan Bailey, who had who had talked with both boys, said that Thompson was suffering from post-traumatic stress, that he really did not know the difference between right and wrong, where Venables did. So she was setting, it seemed, was saying that Venables was the ringleader in all of this. But uh, the trial went on for more than uh, 20 hours of recorded testimony. I mean, it went on for several days, but there was more than 20 hours of recorded testimony of both witnesses as well as 20 hours of recorded testimony from the boys that was laid before these magistrates to make a decision. I think the final nail in this coffin was the forensic pathologist, Lawrence Lee, who testified for over an hour on the condition of the young boy's body. Uh, all the injuries, the paint in the eye, the fact that there was a severe hemorrhagic brain damage and the fact that the body was literally cut in two by an oncoming train. All of that, I think, kind of sealed the deal for Thompson and Venables, who were found guilty on November 24, 1993, becoming the youngest convicted murderers of the 20th century and uh, the youngest convicted murderer, I believe, in still in UK history. Any of my UK subscribers or watchers out there, please let me know if I'm, if I'm wrong in that. But uh, they were sentenced to be held indefinitely at the same youth detention facility they were being held at. And they would be kept in custody at Her Majesty's pleasure for very, very many years to come. Uh, but basically, they recommended a minimum term of eight years. At the close of the trial, the judge lifted reporting restrictions and released the names of the boys to the public and said that he did this because he believed that public interest overrode the rights to them of privacy. Uh, he was later criticized for that decision and uh, kind of cited as many of the difficulties it would lead to in the future. But this trial does not end here. Even though a minimum sentence of eight years was the initial trial recommendation of Sir David Onman, the, the one that released their names to the public, um, the Lord Chief Justice of the area then recommended a few, a few weeks later that they be held for a minimum of 10 years. And then later that summer, another higher placed legal official of the Home Secretary, his name was Michael Howard, said that they would be held for 15 years, not to be released or considered for release until they were 25 years old. Uh, a lot of groups um, have blasted this case for its mishandling, the fact that the names of these two young boys were released, uh, the fact that their sentence kept getting changed, um, and that, ironically, future uh, Prime Minister Tony Blair was part of that um, Home Secretary Division that recommended the extension of the sentence. Um, there was a lot of speculation that this had been inspired by the movie Child's Play 3 uh, because John Venable's father had rented it a few months prior. Again, I don't think that movie is what inspired it. I think these children were already 
kind of sociopathic, and they probably already had murder flowing through their own veins before it happened. Again, we don't have a whole lot of detailed information of their home life to know if there was any abuse or bullying or anything that would have led us to believe that they were pushed in that direction. But for the most part, they were, they, they, they're, they were detained for their 15 years. They were held at different facilities for their own protection and underwent daily psychiatric therapy in which it was released that both of them were now suffering from PTSD and that Venables in particular was being haunted by flashbacks and nightmares. Several appeals went back and forth stating the unfairness of the trial and eventually in June of 2001 a parole board ruled that the two, that the two boys were no longer a threat to society and should be released as soon as their minimum tariff of the original eight years, so it went from Eight years to ten years to fifteen years, now back down to eight, they should be released. So, the terms of their release included the following. They were not allowed to have contact with each other or Bulger's family. They were prohibited from visiting the entire region where the crime had occurred. Curfew may be imposed on them, and they must report to probation officers weekly. If they breached the rules or were deemed a risk to the public, they could be returned to prison at any time. An injunction was imposed on the media after the trial, preventing them from pursuing Thompson and Venables and, um, because they feared that there was a risk to their lives. Since they were released from uh, jail, the Bulger family experienced a divorce, uh, they did have a second son, but their marriage didn't last. Often marriages don't last after the death of a child. They divorced in 1995. They both remarried and have since had other families. Um, basically, Venables and Thompson were put into sort of a witness protection program, had their names changed, and are living in parts unknown because of the amount of press this case received and the amount of vigilante threats put against their lives. So... They're kind of living out there somewhere. But not before John Venables uh, was actually returned to prison uh, in 2010 for a violation of the uh, terms of his release. Uh, they did not give any further details on exactly what he did, but uh, according to people that were close to the case, it was uh, for possession of things like child pornography and child abuse photographs. But uh, he has since been released, and they are both living uh, under new names uh, in unknown parts of the UK. So, anyway, um, that's the sad end of this case. Um, also going to be the end of part two. Uh, I just need a, a mental break after all this, but... Uh, there's never any winners in any murder case, unfortunately, and definitely not when it's three children involved, both perpetrators and victims. Um, this was a hard one. Uh, I know I have people, uh, subscribers in the UK, let me know what you think about this case. Was it mishandled? Uh, because it is a, a UK case, it, it, I had to dig to find more information on it to actually understand the UK legal system, but if you could give me your opinion on that, that would be greatly appreciated. But... Um, I will be back really soon with part three of this Evil Kids series, and until then, keto and cry.